Hey, what's going on? I am back. This is Madam Butterfly, and you are listening to Frequency Bay. And we're here with another episode, and we're going to do a crash course on the the human brain, as always, my favorite. Um, and uh, we're going to go into a documentary on, a science documentary on mental disorders, brain trauma, stress, anxiety, and the like. And it's basically just a documentary on the brain. And from there, we're going to do like a nice little skip hop into something else. And uh, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. And uh, at the very end, um, there is something that I... Uh, there was actually a person that I wanted to shout out on TikTok who um, made a video on um, female health. And uh, I think that this particular video says a lot about um, how seriously female health is taken in, in the Western world. And um, so, yeah, let's just hop right into it. And I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. If you've decided to listen in, I thank you so much. It's genuinely appreciated. So there is no greater financial or societal challenge to governments around the world than mental health disorders. Disorders such as depression, Alzheimer's disease, and other neuropsychiatric disorders rob the individual and society of mental capital and well-being. One in four of us suffers from a mental health disorder. Problems of Alzheimer's disease, schizophrenia, depression, mania, all of these disorders impact on our cognitive functioning. And this consequently impacts on our ability to look after things in our home and also to uh, work effectively. So we need to detect early. We need to detect these disorders early and treat effectively early on. And we can do this with modern technology such as iPads. And also uh, we have neuroimaging technology that we can use. And this will help us and it's especially important to detect early for Alzheimer's disease because we are developing neuroprotective agents which will stop the disease process itself. So we want to put these drugs into people before the brain damage is done where they can still function in their home life and also have a, a good work uh, environment and, and do well at work. Well, we have two forms of cognition. One is cold cognition and the other is hot cognition. And cold or rational cognition helps us make most of our decisions in daily life. And hot cognition helps us with uh, social decisions and emotional decisions. And we can measure cold cognition objectively. And we can see that when we do this, it activates a neural network in the brain, which importantly includes dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. And in hot cognition, we can see that uh, that involves a different neural network, which includes orbital frontal cortex. Well, both hot and cold cognition can be affected in neuropsychiatric disorders, such as depression. And this is one of the problems for people being able to work. And that's why there's so much absenteeism when people are depressed or when they come back to work, there's presenteeism. 
Well, we have some drugs that can treat some of the cognitive symptoms that we see in some disorders, such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. So for instance, Ritalin or methylphenidate helps with some of the attentional disabilities that people have with ADHD. But it doesn't treat the whole range of cognitive symptoms. And we need uh, more novel drugs, which will be more effective and treat all of the range. So episodic memory problems that we see in Alzheimer's disease, problems with cognitive flexibility. And also we need uh, treatments for impulsive behavior, which can get us into trouble. So although we have some good drugs, we need better drugs. Well, there's a new area called neuroethics. And neuroethics is concerned with how new discoveries about the brain will affect our society. And I'm particularly interested in two aspects of neuroethics. One is the stigma attached to mental health problems. And the other is the increasing lifestyle use by healthy people of these cognitive enhancing or smart drugs. And we have to ask ourselves as a society, why are healthy people using these drugs? Why do they feel the need? Is it the pressure and stresses on us in our daily life and the global environment that we're working in that lead people to use these drugs? And in our studies, we have shown that people use them to counteract jet lag and exhaustion. They use them to get the competitive edge in the global environment. And they also seem to make tasks that are somewhat repetitive or less interesting seem more pleasurable. So there's this range to why people use them. But governments need to promote um, good diet and exercise and lifelong learning because we know that exercise and lifelong learning will promote neurogenesis in the brain. And this is the way we can promote good brain health. But also we can use new technology, these iPads. We can do cognitive training using iPads to ensure that we have good cognitive function and we can turn them into games. So we need to promote good brain health across the lifespan so we have resilience, a flourishing society, which is very important. We need to start early because many of the mental health disorders start before the age of 24 years. So really, we need governments to realize that mental health is every bit as important as physical health, and that through these new technologies, we can promote good brain health for all members of society. And this, in turn, will stop these debilitating disorders um, becoming chronic and lifelong and will obviously help the economy. So my question to you is, how can we ensure that we detect these disorders early and we treat them effectively? Thank you. So this is the World Economic Forum, and um, that was a presenter. Um, hold on, let me see if I can catch your name. And this, uh, this uh, documentary is brought to us by Science Round, a YouTube channel uh, online. And it says, uh, let me see here. I don't think it mentions your name. I don't see it. Um, yeah, let us continue. I hate the fact that I can't, um, whatchamacallit, um, announce her by name, but 
uh, let's move forward. I'll also be posting this on my Facebook page on uh, Frequency Bay. So if you want to check it out, you're more than welcome. Welcome to the short tutorial on your brain on anxiety and stress. It is essential to know how our brain responds to the stimuli which trigger an anxiety response so that you are equipped to deal appropriately with anxiety. Let me highlight the key areas of your brain that are involved and then I will explain what happens inside the brain. The thalamus is the central hub for sights and sounds. The thalamus breaks down incoming visual cues by size, shape and colour and auditory cues by volume and dissonance and then signals the cortex. The cortex then gives raw sights and sounds meaning, enabling you to be conscious of what you are seeing and hearing. And I'll mention here that the prefrontal cortex is vital to turning off the anxiety response once the threat has passed. The amygdala is the emotional core of the brain whose primary role is to trigger the fear response. Information passing through the amygdala is associated with an emotional significance. The bed nucleus of the stria terminals is particularly interesting when we discuss anxiety. While the amygdala sets off an immediate burst of fear, the BLST perpetuates the fear response, causing longer-term unease typical of anxiety. The locus ceruleus receives signals from the amygdala and initiates the classic anxiety response, rapid heartbeat, increased blood pressure, sweating and pupil dilation. The hippocampus is your memory center, storing raw information from the senses, along with emotional baggage attached to the data by the amygdala. Now we know these key parts, what happens when we are anxious, stressed or fearful? Anxiety, stress and of course fear are triggered primarily through your senses. Sight and sound are first processed by the thalamus, filtering incoming cues and sent directly to the amygdala or to the cortex. Smell and touch go directly to the amygdala, bypassing the thalamus altogether. This is why smells often evoke very powerful memories of food. Any cues from your incoming senses that are associated with a threat in the amygdala, whether that threat is real or not, current or not, are immediately processed to trigger the fear response. This is the expressway. It happens before you consciously feel the fear. The hypothalamus and pituitary gland cause the adrenal glands to pump out high levels of the stress hormone cortisol. Too much cortisol short circuits the cells of the hippocampus, making it difficult to organize the memory of a trauma or a stressful experience. Memories lose context and become fragmented. The body's sympathetic nervous system shifts into overdrive, causing the heart to beat faster, blood pressure to rise and lungs to hyperventilate. Perspiration increases and the skin's nerve endings tingle, causing goosebumps. Your senses become hyper-alert, freezing you momentarily as you drink in every detail. Adrenaline floods to the muscles, preparing you to fight or run away. The brain shifts focus from digestion to focus on the potential dangers, sometimes causing evacuation of the digestive tract through urination, defecation or vomiting. Heck, if you're about to be eaten at someone else's dinner, why bother digesting your own? Only after the fear response has been activated does the conscious mind kick in. Some sensory information takes a more thoughtful route from the thalamus to the cortex. The cortex decides whether the sensory information warrants a fear response. If the fear is a genuine threat in space and time, 
the cortex signals the amygdala to continue being on alert. Fear is a good, useful response essential to survival. However, anxiety is a fear of something that cannot be located in space and time. Most often, it is that indefinable something triggered initially by something real that you sense, but that in itself is not threatening, but it is associated with a fearful memory. And the bed nucleus of the stria terminals perpetuate that fear response. Anxiety is a real fear response for the individual feeling anxious, and anxiety can be debilitating for the sufferer. Now that you know how anxiety happens in, in your brain, you can pay attention to how we can deliberately use our prefrontal cortex to turn off an inappropriate anxiety response once a threat is passed. One speaks about the brain, uh, neurons come to mind, and more specifically the complex network of electrical signals that's traveling constantly throughout the brain. And all brain functions do depend uh, on this communication network, and we saw that in the previous talk. Um, however, neurons uh, are not static objects that are uh, fixed in time. Um, those are uh, deformable cells that can grow, squeeze into tight places, uh, push other cells, and potentially die. Uh, and this is all dictated by the mechanical properties of the cell themselves and the protein network right underneath the cell membrane that's feeling external forces and potentially uh, changing configuration in response to them. As any type of structure, um, neurons can be damaged reversibly or irreversibly. And the stronger and the faster uh, the force you apply to them, uh, the more probability is that uh, the functional properties of the neuron will actually be um, affected. Um, to tackle this challenge, uh, people have been using different means, and one of them is uh, computational modeling. And we went from 1970s, really rough head model, to very advanced patient-specific MRI and CAT-scan-based um, head model um, that can be put in different situations uh, that we'll see afterwards. The technique that's being used in general is called the finite element method, in which you take your real geometry, uh, you discretize it in small elements and you associate mechanical properties in each one uh, to each one of these elements, whether it's stiffness, strength, um, objectivity. Uh, once you have this head model, you can then put it in an environment of your choice and apply external forces to it. That can be an impact, uh, a punch, uh, or even shock waves. You can then simulate uh, how the whole, uh, the whole of, this, of this head and all the organs inside it a deform, you can measure the pressure and uh, shearing um, and all these kind of uh, uh, forces. Uh, you can then zoom in into one area of interest and then transfer those forces at the cell level and actually calculate how the cell is being deformed. However, uh, neurons are first and foremost communication machine and knowing uh, how much they deform doesn't tell you much a priori on how healthy they are. And to do so, you need to go down one more scale and you reach the protein scale and using a technique that's called molecular dynamics in which you actually track um, the movement, track the movement of each one of the uh, atoms individually. And we're looking here at uh, an ion channel. And why do we look at an ion channel? Well, an ion channel is an important protein in neurons. Um, when a signal is reaching this ion channel, electrical signal, 
they do open up and organize an exchange of ions in and out of the cell. This potentially change uh, the electrical voltage, the potential, right underneath the membrane locally, and that participates to the propagation of the signal. So you can easily understand now how deforming such protein will actually change the electrical property of, uh, of the neuron itself. Uh, and this is one of many examples of a protein that's being damaged or when submitted to an external uh, force. Once you know that at the protein level, then you can go back up the scale and basically uh, reach again the whole neuron uh, level. And then if you send a signal on the right inside of your, of your neuron, damage it in the middle, you can then measure the alteration and electrical signal on the left side. And that's done at the neuron level. Again, you have different techniques that can be used to scale that up again to uh, the uh, neuron uh, network, uh, actually first neuron interaction level, a small network and large network, and uh, eventually cortical colon. And this is actually done by the Blue Brain Project originally, now the Urban Brain Project uh, in Europe. Um, that is from actually which those pictures have, have been taken. Uh, once you know that, at large network level, you can finally reach the brain level. Okay, that's the main idea. And you can map uh, electrical uh, signal at the organ level to pathologies of traumatic brain injuries, such as uh, short-term memory loss, epilepsy, or let's sum up a bit the approach that, that I propose here. Uh, we're going to the human scale, and you're applying an external force to the whole head. Then you're going to do go down to the organ, the brain, the cell, and then eventually the protein, using numerical technique at each level. Then you're transferring uh, mechanical property information to functional properties, whether it's electrophysiology or biochemistry, and go back up the scale uh, to the overall brain function level. However, uh, the brain is not just a V-shaped process, right? This is uh, an optimized organ by nature uh, that will feel that something is wrong and try to use all these vertical uh, scales and horizontal properties to try to find another uh, optimization uh, uh, state in which you will be healthy again. We'll, we'll see that a bit later. So I have a question for you. Uh, in my research, I need to go down to this uh, very small scale. But how can we reach um, can we actually link together mechanical properties and, and functional properties while staying at the macroscopic level without these very expensive numerical way to go down uh, at the micro scale? So how do we link mechanical and mechanics and function at the macro scale? That would be my question. I'm uh, delighted to speak to teachers. Uh, I've been teaching only 47 years now. That is my 47th, uh, 40 at UC Berkeley. And um, I want to start uh, a little bit with uh, what I do technically. Uh, I work on uh, the relationship between the mind, the brain, and language. And uh, what we've been doing for the past um, uh, quarter of a century is trying to figure out exactly how the brain does thought and language, to model it with neural computation, uh, to look at neuroscience in doing that, to take the cognitive linguistics and the experimental psychology and bring them together. And they're actually coming together. I want to talk a little bit about that, but also why you should care. 
this. What does it, what does it matter? Uh, the first thing to realize is you think with your brain. You don't have a choice. Ideas are not floating in air. Uh, the question is, how does that work? I mean, you got, uh, think of it this way. How do you get ideas out of neurons? Neurons just fire. But, you know, how do you get ideas out of them? Well, we'll give you some ideas as we go along. But we have a pretty good sense of how that works. Secondly, why should you care? All right? Think of it this way. Um, yesterday, uh, in the New York Times, there's a story that one out of four African-American children coming into kindergarten assume they're going to fail. Okay? What is that about? Well, first, uh, one thing we know is that you are born with 100 billion neurons, each connected to between 1,000 and 10,000 others. That gives you close to a quadrillion connections. And by the time you're five, half of them have died. The half not used. And that's important. By the time you're five, your brain has been, been shaped. And that's one of the reasons why early childhood education is absolutely crucial. One of the reasons why you must have it, why parents are, have to be involved in teaching. I mean, this is not uh, just something that you just can pick up at any time. What, is, what you've done earlier matters, and matters a lot. So just to begin there, you know, if anybody's going to talk about early childhood education, that should be sentence number one, because most people don't know that. Very, very crucial. Second, uh, because you think with your brain, every idea that you have is physical. Ideas are not floating in the air. They are physical. And we've been studying the structure of those ideas. We know a lot about them after doing it for, I've been doing it for 50 years, uh, working on this. Now, what we've been doing is figuring out the, the details of these. We'll get into that in a bit. But crucially, every idea and every con uh, connection of ideas that you have uh, is given by a neural circuit in your brain. Okay? Now, many of those are fixed for life. They're there, the things you learn, the ideas that you learn early, many of them early. And very often they are metaphorical ideas, which we'll get to. But the important thing is that if you do not have a neural circuit for understanding uh, an idea, you won't understand it at all. It has to be close enough to what you're teaching. It has to be comprehensible. Otherwise, it'll go, quote, one in one ear and out the other. It won't make any sense. So when you're teaching, it's important to know what people already know. That's not trivial. It's extremely important to figure out because, you know, if I try to teach something that with it, no one, there's nothing that anyone connect, can connect to, it's not going to be there. So that's the next sort of obvious thing to understand. Okay, what happens after that? Well, uh, the big thing to, to get is that the classical view of what reason is has failed. And that's important. Let me try to give you a sense of what I learned about reason. I learned that it was all conscious. It's 98% unconscious. And it has to be. Why? The brain functions in parallel Reason functions linearly. Consciousness functions linearly. 
you have massive parallelism, you could not be uh, uh, consciously aware of most things going on in your brain. It's an impossibility. Most things are going on, and you don't know they're there, but they're structuring your conscious thought. So if you think you know what you're thinking, you probably don't. <laughs> and that's, but there are ways to find out, and that's important. So second, and what we've been doing is showing how you can find out. So that, that is crucial. Another idea that is taught about reason is this, that uh, reason is abstract and it's embodied, and not just embodied in the brain, but it comes out of your actual physical emb embodied experiences in ways that we'll talk about in a bit. That is, uh, it's not the case that you can't, reason is just abstract. Ideas don't float in the air. They come, meaning comes out of what you experience. Another idea that you get is that reason is logic. It's logical thinking. And there are logics of thinking, but uh, I was trained at MIT as a mathematician, as well as uh, I also trained in literature, both, and linguistics. And what you find out when you do logic is that um, that's not how people mostly think. They mostly think in things called frames and metaphors. What is a frame? Very simple. Uh, think of the frame of a classroom. Okay? You have typically you know, a teacher, students, a subject matter, uh, etc. Maybe lessons, lesson plans, uh, ideas of what you're teaching, but, and lots of other big ideas that you guys are trying to change. But there are other things that don't happen in a classroom. You don't have surgery in most of you know, K-12 classrooms. Uh, you, know, you don't have, uh, hopefully, herds of elephants coming through your classroom. Uh, I mean, things don't happen there. Other things do. Right? In this, there are things called semantic roles. You're a teacher. That's a role that you play. Students play a role. They come in. They may be of any age, and they're still students. You may be of any age. You're still a teacher. Okay? That is, you play that role. That is what a frame is. It has roles. It has things that happen in whatever you're talking about or thinking about. Metaphors are not in language. They're in thought. The language is superficial. Language is real. There are linguistic metaphors. But metaphorical thought is much, much deeper. Let me give you a feel for that. Um, the first, uh, here's, here's one. Um, you've heard of the fiscal cliff. Right? You probably have heard of it a lot. Right? Now, um, other people have pointed out, economists have pointed out that there is no such thing. That, you know, it's not there. Uh, and uh, what happens is they've tried to change the metaphor. And it doesn't work. Make it a fiscal hill. doesn't work. A fiscal curb doesn't work. The austerity bomb doesn't work, etc. Why? What happens is this. The fiscal cliff is what we'll call a super metaphor. It is something that has a what's called a cascade of other deeper metaphors supporting it. That cascade is fixed in your brain, and it's hard to get rid of it. And let me try to give you a feel for how powerful that can be. Uh, you have a metaphor that is around the world, but many metaphors are, are learned everywhere uh, simply through experience, like more is up, less is down. Why is more up? You pour every water in the glass, the level goes up. There's a correlation in your experience, and that correlation 
in your experience is registered in your brain in two different parts, and you'll learn a circuit connecting them. That circuit in your brain is Moore's up. Now, uh, in that, you understand the stock market is going up, the GDP is going up or down, etc. If you look at the graphs that you have of, uh, let's say, of the GDP or a stock market graph, it's going to go forward and up or down, right? Perfectly normal. Why should you have an economy seen as moving? Ever thought of that? An economy is the collection of economic activity. There is a general metaphor that action is motion. You say, how is your project coming along? How are things going? Well, I'm stuck. You know, hit a brick wall, all of those things. Right? Action is motion. And the economy is seen, therefore, as moving. Why is it moving forward? Because the future is ahead and, and the past is behind. Right? There's a reason for that. We're looking ahead to things. That's why it's moving forward. And then you have a measure of economic activity to go up or down. Fine. Now, what is the fiscal cliff about? When Bernanke introduced this, what did he say? He said, oh, he had in mind the idea that oil economy might go up a little for a while, but if you certain things happen, it could go way down. And you have a picture of this cliff. So far, so good. But what do you know about a cliff? It's not just something that goes down. It's dangerous, right? You know, you could drive off a cliff and die. Falling is failing, right? If you die, that's the end of it. And if the economy dies, it's non-functional, right? Like the computer dying, it's non-functional. Metaphorically, the fiscal thing, therefore, you're going to be afraid of it. The fiscal cliff has all of those things at once. All of those frames and metaphors are there simultaneously in the fiscal cliff but not in the fiscal hill or the fiscal curve or any random metaphor. You can't just replace a metaphor and have it fit reality. The fiscal cliff does not fit reality at all, but it's there, and it's going to stay there because it's so deep. Right? So one of the things you need to know is what are the other deep uh, metaphors that are there? They're important if you're teaching, and they're all over the place. By the way, is there some water? Because I could use some. <coughs> Sorry. Um, now, uh, rescue. <laughs> Thanks. Terrific. It even has lemon in it. Cool. Now, um, there's another very deep thing that we learned, uh, I learned about when I went to school, about rationality. Rationality is supposed to be about self-interest and maximizing that self-interest. And one of the things that's been learned in neuroscience uh, is the following. In 1996, a remarkable thing happened in Parma, Italy. Uh, in the neuroscience lab of Professor Rizzolatti, and I've been in the lab, they were studying, uh, and I've worked with people there, uh, I, they were studying macaque monkeys. And they were trying to figure out exactly what neurons were firing when the monkey did certain tasks. And they had implantations in the monkey's brain for neuron-by-neuron neuron, uh, checks, and uh, which is quite remarkable in itself. 
in the premotor cortex, which choreographs actions. So actions happen up here, premotor over here, connections underneath. Right? Now, um, the if you're going to uh, pick up something like this glass and take a drink, I have to do lots of things. I have to raise my shoulder. I have to hold it. I have to move my elbow. Each one of those is one thing that is done up here in the motor cortex. Those actions are choreographed elsewhere in the premotor cortex. And what they discovered was this. Uh, they had trained the monkey to, let's say, eat bananas. Peel a banana and eat it. Eat peanuts. Fine. Press a button. Uh, grab a ring. Uh, grass objects. Let them go. Things like that. And they could find out what was firing in the brain. One day, uh, one of the people running the experiment, who I've since gotten to be friends with, uh, went out, uh, had lunch. Uh, the experiment was going fine. Came back, saw a pile of bananas, started peeling it and eating it, and heard the machine go click, 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 as if because the monkey's brain was firing. So he went to see what was firing. What was firing was the set of neurons for peeling and eating a banana. But the monkey wasn't eating the banana. He was. Right? He discovered mirror neurons. That is, there are a set of neural circuits in the brain that fire when you perform an action or you see someone else perform the same one. Now, in addition, those neurons are connected to the emotional regions of the brain, which is why you can tell if somebody else is writhing in pain or if they're happy or smiling or feeling sad or drooping. You can see it because you see their muscles and they're connected to yours. And every emotion you have has a physical correlate. So, and that's remarkable. So one, we have a physical basis for empathy. Think about that. Second, there's a ridge near there, about this far away in the brain. And in that ridge, there's another set of neurons that fire when you either uh, see an object or there's a normal action you would perform on that object. You see a banana, you peel and eat it, but it, that, that's a, a normal, what's called a canonical action. But sticking it in your ear is not a canonical action. So the neurons fire for the canonical actions, but not for sticking it in your ear. Okay? So they, what that means is you are connected to the physical world by normal actions. We evolved to figure out well, how to act normally in the physical world. We're physically connected to that. Now think about what that means about the environment. The word environment suggests it's outside of us. It's actually also inside of us. You cannot enact in the environment without it being inside of you. And that changes the whole idea of what environmentalism is. Right? We can get into that later. It's a very important change. So one thing is this about emotions. Very important thing about emotions. There are certain parts of the brain that fire when you're feeling certain emotions. Those are connected physically to your body. So, for example, when you experience anger, your skin temperature goes up about half a degree. Your heartbeat rate goes up. Your blood pressure goes up. It's harder for you to see accurately. It's harder for you to do fine movements accurately, right? Standard things. It turns out that that physiology of anger 
gives you the metaphors for understanding anger. That's why you can say, my blood is boiling, he's red in the face, etc. He's about to blow up, okay? uh, and, uh, and on and on. Uh, we've studied this in very great detail, uh, and uh, I have, we have, um, there are now long studies and books on this for the full range of emotions. They all work metaphorically by the physiology of the emotion. What you learn about the brain and how it's connected to the body shows you how you're thinking and therefore also how you're speaking and what the, those ideas are. They're not separate. Now, one of the most important discoveries about the brain is this. When you are imagining something, the same part of the brain is used as when you're actually experiencing it. So when you're imagining seeing something, the same part of the brain is used as when you're actually seeing. When you are imagining moving some part of your body, the same part of the brain is used as when you're actually doing it. So there are uh, fMRI studies. They'll put people in a machine and say, okay, you're, imagine you're, you know, kick, kick first. I move your leg to kick a soccer ball. Move your leg, certain part of the brain up here fires. Now, uh, move your um, hand to um, grasp uh, a baseball. Okay, they move their hand, it fires there. Now, imagine move your, move your, now move your mouth to bite an apple. Fires there. Fine. Now, uh, imagine, don't move anything. Imagine kicking. Same part of the brain fires. Imagine grasping. Same part fires. Imagine biting. Same part fires. The same part of the brain is firing when you're imagining as when you're doing. And it also is true when you are remembering, when you are dreaming, and when you're understanding language. Language is under the meaning of language involves mental simulation in your brain. Right? You are simulating what you're understanding in your brain. And when you're doing that, you're also engaging your mirror neuron systems to understand and connect with other people, and your canonical neuron uh, uh, your canonical neuron systems to connect with the world. That is, you are connecting with people when you are reading. So now think about reading novels. What is involved in that? Or reading poetry? Or understanding art? Or involving or seeing a play? What you're doing, if you understand it, is simulating what is going on. You're becoming part of those three people. You're understanding that, and you're imagining things that don't exist in the world, but that you could experience through them. Right? What you're doing is learning how to simulate things. Now, you can simulate things all the time, through, you know, which don't exist. You can make up things that don't exist, and the question is, how are you doing it? What is the brain mechanism? Let me give you an example. Um, uh, imagine a flying pig whose name is Pigasus. Okay? Uh, what does that flying pig look like? How does it fly? What? It has wings. Where are the wings? That's bad. Uh, which way is its snout directed relative to the wings in terms of its direction of motion? It's going horizontal and forward, where the beak of a bird would be, right? How did you all know that? You saw the movie. You saw the movie. 
Ah, but there's another kind of flying pig <clears throat> whose name is Super Slime. Who's <laughs> got a cape that goes like this. Okay. Now, the point is you can do this instantly in about half a second. How? Okay. The name for, the, for this phenomenon is neural binding. And what it does is this. If there are uh, circuits for taking ideas that you already have, pigs and birds, and binding the relevant parts together, the wings of the birds, the shape of the pig, and so on. And you can't move things in your brain. All you can do is have connections between them. And the question is, how do you get those connections? And that's what we're figuring out. It's a fairly straightforward way, uh, given what we know about neural learning. I'm not going to give you a lecture on neural learning. But it's crucial. Your brain can do this like that. You can imagine new things. And the question is, how do you get trained to imagine new things? It's a natural thing that your brain can do. And that is by reading, by reading poetry, learning to understand it, through drama, through the arts, through um, folk tales, through all of those things. Now. Uh, let me talk a little bit about mathematics, because one of the things that you are constantly taught is the following. We need to teach more math and science in the schools, and we do. Let's not debate that. Uh, and we also need to have more innovation in our economy. We have to out-innovate everybody else, right? We have to have new ideas, which is why we have a big ideas conference. Right? That's why you're here. The big ideas come from neural simulation, which comes from reading and thinking and putting things together and all of those things. It doesn't just come from learning the math and science. Though there are big ideas in math and science, but they're not, they're not training the imagination in just that way. And that's important. It is important, if you're going to think about innovating anything and train people to do that, to have them read and learn about the arts. And by the arts, I, I include the visual arts. Um, I spent some time back in the late 70s uh, on the, um, back in the Carter administration, for those of you who might remember that, uh, <laughs> on the um, policy panel of the uh, NEA Visual Arts Division, uh, you know, working on arts policy. And what they needed to do was change arts policy. I was the consulting linguist. They needed a non-artist. And what we did was something important. Uh, we, we changed the definition of art with respect to grants. Up until that time, photography and crafts were not considered art and could not get grants. And we said, photography is art, you know? If you're, you know, all sorts of craft making is art all over the country, right? We changed it because you can innovate in even in the government, <laughs> even in the in the field of art. You can you you're going to innovate even in administration. You can innovate. You can change things because you can think a new thought. Okay. Now one of the things that I've been uh, doing for the last 35 years is studying metaphorical thought. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about how that happened. Uh, 
1978, I was uh, teaching a freshman undergraduate seminar at Berkeley with six people sitting around a table. And uh, one of the one one day we were reading various papers, and we were reading a paper on metaphor, on the classical view of metaphor and the philosophical view of metaphor, and so on. And um, it was raining because it was February, sort of like it's today. And uh, one of the young women in the class came in a little bit late and drenched and in tears. So uh, she sat down at the table about four feet away from everybody else. And we all tried not to notice that she was in tears. Okay, So we're discussing this on page 10. Professor so-and-so says this. What do you think about that? Let's go around the table. We get to her. She says, I'm sorry. I can't do this today. I've got a metaphor problem with my boyfriend. <laughs> Maybe you guys can help. 1978 in Berkeley? We say, sure. <laughs> All well trained. <laughs> he says, on the way over here, my boyfriend said something disturbing. He said that our relationship had hit a dead-end street. You know, I don't understand what to make of this. And we said, okay, well, look, if it's hit a dead-end street, you can't keep going the way it's been going. You may have to turn back, right? We realized that there were several expressions in which love was talked about in terms of travel. So this is a linguistics class, right? So we say, okay, let's look at all the ways in which love can be talked about in terms of travel. Okay, guys, how can you understand love relationships in terms of travel? Well, one at a time. <laughs> what was it? I didn't hear that. Getting the first base. Getting the first base. What else? <laughs> Off-ramp. Hmm? Off-ramp. <laughs> Others. It's a long, bumpy road. What else? Well, fly me to the moon. Right. More. It's a journey. What else? What kind of journey? Right? A long journey. Relationship can be on the rocks. Off the track. What else? Spinning your wheels. What? In the air. Yes. What? Train wreck. Right. You, if it's in the air, you may have to bail out. Right? Went separate ways. You're going in different directions. You're at a crossroads. Right? Hmm? Go all the way. Yes. Now, given those, we said, okay, nice list. Right? Uh, is there a generalization about this list? That's what we do. That's our job, to figure out the general principles. So you say, yeah, uh, what are the lovers in these metaphors? They're travelers, right? What is the relationship? It's a vehicle, either a car, a train, a boat, a plane, whatever, right? What's going on is they are traveling together in a vehicle toward common goals, okay? And these, each metaphor is about the problems in doing that. So it's always, you know, on the rocks, off the track, going in different directions, you know, et cetera, bailing out. It's about those difficulties in relationships in terms of travel. Fine. And the young lady says, I'm sorry. I don't care about your generalization. <laughs> My boyfriend is breaking up with me. He's thinking in terms of this metaphor.
Oh, okay, I'm going with this professor. I say, that's interesting. How can you think in terms of a metaphor? How does that work? Okay, let's take spinning your wheels in the relationship. Okay, uh, you have that. Is there an image that you have? Right. Where are the wheels? Are the wheels, is it just wheels or are they attached to something? They're in, in mud, in sand, and are they, is there something that they're attached to? Or just the wheels? The car. Okay, it's a car. Is the car moving? No. Do you want it to be moving? Are you trying to get it moving? How do you feel? You all know the right answers. Now, that given that image and the knowledge about the image, let's apply the metaphor, which is basically a mapping from travel to love via lovers or travelers, etc. Okay? So the traveler, the lovers are travelers in that vehicle. The, the love relationship is not getting anywhere. It's not going toward their common life goals. They're trying to get it to move, to go somewhere, and they're frustrated. And that's what that idiom means. Right? Now, it turns out that they all work like this. There's a general metaphor that, that maps travel to love, and that this works for all sorts of cases, whether you're going in different directions. They mean different things because each of those is a separate image with separate knowledge, but the general metaphor applies to it. That's cool. Okay? It's like what we saw with the fiscal cliff. It's a deep thing. Now, uh, what we learn from that is that metaphorical thought is normal. Now, how is that possible? How do you learn metaphorical thought at all? The answer is you use your brain, and you don't know you're using it, and you're usually a little kid. So, how do little kids learn metaphorical thought, and when do they learn it? By about two years and nine months, maybe three. Every three-year-old granddaughter, she's doing just fine. All right, how does that work? Here you're a little kid, and you look around, and you see your parents pouring water into a glass or milk into a bottle every time the level goes up. And you may not be paying attention consciously, but your brain is. It notices verticality change, quantity change, and that there's a relationship between them, more is up, and two parts of the brain together notice this. Or suppose they're held warmly, that is, they're, they're held affectionately and they experience temperature in different parts of the brain. What happens is these parts of the brain start being active, and as they become active over and over again, the activation spreads along existing pathways, and it spreads further and further till the shortest pathway is found between them, and you form a circuit. And that circuit is the metaphor of warm is, war is up or for affection is warmth. Now, once you have those in your brain, they affect behavior. They're not just there for understanding, which they are there for. They're not just there for language. They affect what you do. You live according to them. You know? So, for example, uh, we understand time as a resource, a money-like resource. You spend time, invest your time, budget your time, etc. And you live that way. We have a clock right here. Right? Telling me the time, how much time we have for this talk. Right? We live by that metaphor. And 
we live by lots and lots of them all over the place. Now, the experiments are cool or warm, depending on how you think about it. So here's an example. At Yale, which is a pretty cold place in winter, uh, John Barge uh, and his students set up an experiment where they brought in subjects and they gave half of them a warm cup of coffee, nice in the winter, and the other half a cold cup of coffee. And then they brought them in and said, now we're going to start the experiment. Tell us, imagine you've met somebody, what are they like? The guys who got the warm cups of coffee met friendly people. <laughs> the other guys met unfriendly people. All right, similar experiment in Toronto, which is also cold in winter. Okay. They bring in some uh, subjects, usually college sophomores, and, uh, you know, they go into a room, and the people in the room are told in advance who the subjects are, and they say, okay, some of them we're going to snub, we're going to treat them, you know, act like they're lepers. Other people are going to be very warm about, we'll be friendly, etc. You know, in a systematic way. Now, afterwards, uh, these people leave, and on the way out, they're asked to judge the temperature of the room. The ones who are treated warmly say it's five degrees warmer than the ones who are snubbed. Okay? Now, I can go on and on. There's a marvelous book that just came out about a month ago called Louder Than Words by Benjamin Bergen. And it's, it is an introduction to how the brain works and how the mind works through 200 such experiments. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. So we are going to go for about another five minutes, and then we're going to switch gears a little bit. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been a very interesting uh, documentary and collection of um, collection of ideas and um, ways of thinking. I'm excited to get into more. So let's go ahead and um, continue. Beautifully done and funny, because <laughs> he's hilarious. Now, so you know, if you're interested in this at all, Louder Than Words is a great book. It's also very readable, easy to understand, uh, and so on. I recommend it very highly. But the point here is that how you behave has to do with the metaphorical cascades that you learn and that stay there with you all your life. They're there. And that's important to know. Now, what else is important to know? We know from empathy and from the mirror neurons, that, which are the basis of empathy, that there are a couple of ways that you can teach. You can be a nurturant teacher, empathizing with your students, or you can be a strict teacher, trying to discipline them, periodly, getting them to do what you want, period. And those are very different ways of teaching. And they have very different effects on students. When you're teaching to the test, you're trying to just give them information, and there's another metaphor used. And that metaphor is what is called the conduit metaphor. It's one of the major metaphors for communication. It says that ideas are objects, words are containers, and communication is putting the ideas into words and sending them to somebody else who then takes the same ideas out of the words. You've heard this theory. It doesn't work. It is absolutely false. That's not how you communicate. Other people have to have the same brain, 
the same kinds of metaphors, the same kinds of frames. They have to have a basis and a neural structure to understand what you're saying. Right? Teaching is a two-way street, always. It's not the conveying of information. It is not the conveying of information. That is, learning involves something active. You've got to do something. Okay? Now, one of the problems with the way that computer teaching is done is it's all too often done by the assuming a conveying of information. I'm going to sit there in the screen and be passive, uh, you know, and not move, and I'm going to give you information that somebody else is going to get. Wrong. They're going to have to interact in some way. They're going to have to be doing something, and preferably not in front of a computer. Preferably with a real human being, because if you're really learning something, it's largely because you care about it. And you care about it when someone empathizes with you. Right? This is very important. Now, you may wonder why it is that certain kinds of people with political ideas want to, are, are very much coming down on teachers these days. Why do they want to get rid of teachers? Why, what, you know, teachers are wonderful. Why? Because if you look at their ideology and the way they think about the world, it's in terms of strictness, not in terms of nurturance. It's in terms of strictness in the economy, in business, in you know, every aspect of life. And it's very different than if you're thinking in terms of nurturance and caring. One of the reasons that they want to privatize education is to control the content of it, but also how it is taught and who teaches it. And they want to get rid of nurturers. You. That's serious. It's very, very serious. There's a reason for this, and it's not just budgets. Right? And there are metaphors involved here and frames that are important. Uh, what is a pension? A pension is delayed pay for work already done. When they cut pensions, they're stealing your money. Think about it. Nobody's saying that. People are not out there. Political leaders are not saying that. They need to say things like that. Because that kind of frame is toxic. The idea that you're just, after you retire, well, we're paying you for doing nothing. Hardly. We're paying you for a lifetime of work with delayed pay. Okay? Crucial to understand that. If you just, you know, if you look at the discourse, there are metaphors being used that are harmful. Harmful not just to you, but to your students and to our country. So it's really important that you understand how brains work. This is not trivial. And this comes out in every aspect from the fiscal cliff on down. So I want to stop now and just take your questions and whatever you want to talk about. It's the floor is yours. That was really good. So like I said before, we're going to switch gears a bit. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you decide to continue because uh, there's more to come. Hey, folks. All right, and so we're back. So we are <laughs> going to jump right into a guy that I absolutely adore, um, John, 
John Oliver on HBO. If you listen to his content, he's got pretty good information. And we're gonna about talk about we're gonna switch gears to uh, bias in medicine. And this is about twenty two minutes long, so let's not um, let's not waste much time. Let's get right into it. Rated number one by Reasons There's a Finger in Your Ass Magazine. Doctors have held a position of high esteem in our society for generations. Doctors have held a position of high esteem in our society for generations, as you can see in the 1930s film Men of Medicine. In every U.S. city and town, there is one house that everybody knows, the doctors. Available here are the services of the man who, by law, is privileged to practice the most respected of all professions. Yes, only doctors have the privilege of shoving a stick into a child's mouth and diagnosing a condition that we in the 1930s know as gross throat. The cure for it is drowning. But... But while medicine may be the most respected of all professions, it is important to know that not everyone has the same experience when they visit a doctor. I think I would have been treated completely differently if I had been male. You'll hear doctors and nurses like, oh, they're just exaggerating, you know, and not really listening to them because it's a black person. But if it's like a white person, um, it's just like, oh, my God, like, this is serious. It's true. If you are a woman and or a person of color in the U.S., you may well have a very different relationship to our healthcare system than a white man. So, frankly, who better to talk at you for 20 minutes about this than me, the whitest of white men? <laughs> I, look, I get a sunburn watching the Travel Channel. I'm, I'm a walking cider donut, pale, filled with cake, and found at every farmer's market in the Northeast. But, but this is a discussion that we need to have, because while the vast majority of doctors are doing hard work with sometimes limited resources, resources. Bias in medicine is a serious issue, and while it's not the only factor in determining health outcomes, it can have a massive effect. So tonight, let's talk about bias in medicine in two specific areas. First sex, and then race. And in the words of every therapist I've ever had, let's start with sex. Historically, women's bodies have always been fraught with judgment and misconceptions. much of the information that we get fed as women when it comes to fucking like health is such bullshit like i i what <laughs> go swimming you know i've got the curse yeah Peggy. what are you an idiot she's got the curse she can't swim she'll fucking sink it's, it's true in the 50s women referred to their period as the curse but that's not all breasts were the haunted mountains butts were the valley of doom pregnancy was the happening and giving birth was called the babadook it was, it was a very very scary time to be a woman what the fuck clearly improved since then but women can still face an uphill battle to get quality health care there are many many studies showing this for instance they found that women were less likely to be referred for knee replacements than men if they're over 50 and critically ill they were less likely to receive life-saving interventions and when going to the er with urgent abdominal pain women were less likely to receive any pain medicine 
Just listen to one doctor sum up how too many in her profession treat female patients. I think that a lot of times women's symptoms, especially pain, are attributed to emotional imbalance or, you know, women being hysterical or crying wolf about their pain, and, and that's absolutely wrong. Yeah, of course it is. The only time it's understandable for a doctor not to hear a woman's complaints about pain is if she's calling into the office and she's got AT&T, because the calls keep dropping out. Boom, business, Danny! on doctors' parts, there is also a systemic problem here, where doctors may literally know less about women's bodies. Because historically, medicine has studied men's bodies, uh, which here means those assigned male at birth, as a proxy for all bodies. And as one researcher who studied this will tell you, the reason for that was incredibly dumb. There's this assumption that you are me with pesky hormones. Oh, with pesky hormones. The idea is that the fundamental things that are similar between you and me. So that, ironically, the best way to study you is to study me. Wow. What kind of bullshit is this? All the fundamental things in you without this sort of <sighs> stuff. Yeah. Women are full wow. of nuisance stuff. Which is why medicine has long chosen to believe that women are just... Does it sound like misogynistic? Because it sounds a bit misogynistic to me. I don't know. It could just be me. It's possible. Hormonal men. Also, children are tiny men. Dogs are furry men. <laughs> Trees are big, hard, still men. Birds are men who can fly. Fish are men who can glub. And volcanoes are men who, for some reason, ejaculate lava. <laughs> and this idea that women are just men with pesky hormones has led to some woman-shaped blind spots in medicine. For decades, women were basically excluded from medical research trials, in part because of a concern that their menstrual cycles would complicate the results, which you would think would be all the more reason to include them in tests, because women are half the population and can respond to treatment or drugs very differently. And in some cases, their exclusion was utterly ridiculous, as this news report from the 90s shows. In 1990, the Journal of the National Cancer Institute published this report, which looked at the impact of diet on estrogen metabolism and its links to cancer of the breast and uterus. All of the subjects were men. It's true. They studied a way to prevent cancer of the uterus on people who did not have one. That's ridiculously unhelpful. It's like studying healthy conflict resolution and only surveying the real housewives of New York. They've resolved no conflicts. Luann's still pissed off about Dorinda's fish room. Ramona's turned up uninvited at Barbara's clam bake. And Tinsley's furious because they all laughed at the fact that she froze her dead dog. The group's dynamic is still a mess and the show's all the better for it. And, and when you have the male body as the default reference and doctors who might not take women's pain seriously, the consequences can be deadly take heart attacks. You're conditioned to think of them uh, looking like they do on TV all the time. You know, people grabbing their chest and then falling over. But for many women, that is not what they look like. Instead, their heart attacks present with subtler symptoms like pain in the back or jaw, nausea, and unusual fatigue. And lots of doctors miss that. Just look what happened to Catherine Leon, who went to the ER with serious heart problems and was told this. The young doctor came in, very condescending, thought I was just a drama queen. And he said, it's not my job to tell you what's wrong with you. It's my job to tell you what it's not. And it's not your heart. And that was it. 
I was like, well, what do I do next? And he's like, you go home. Wow. That doctor managed to find literally the only time that telling someone to go home is bad advice. Because having a bad day at work, just go home. At a party stuck next to a guy who wants to talk about Bitcoin, go home. You're on second and your buddy grounds a single into left field. The outfielder picks it up and throws to first as you round third, but you realize he's overthrown. Go home! Go home! Go home now! But, but Catherine Leon was having a heart attack. She should not have been sent home, and she's by no means alone. One study found that women who came to the hospital with heart attack symptoms were seven times more likely than men to be misdiagnosed and sent home from the hospital, which is terrible. The only thing a woman should be seven times more likely to do is recognize those Real Housewives references from earlier. And you know what? Even that is not remotely okay. That show is both a nuanced and searing portrayal of wealth, power, and loneliness in Manhattan, or universal themes that should transcend whatever superficial boxes in which it's currently confined. It's, it's our much ado about nothing, and Andy Cohen is our Shakespeare. But that's, that's not the point. It's a very good point. In fact, it's an excellent point. But it's not the point we're making here, which is... Sex and gender bias can clearly distort medical outcomes, but they are not the only forms of bias that can do that. And now, if I may quote the inside of Donald Trump's head, when energy at one of his rallies seems to be flagging, let's get to the racism stuff. Because there is a huge disparity in life expectancy between black and white Americans, particularly for black men. In fact, when one study tried to quantify what is called the mortality gap, they found some shocking numbers, which this documentary chose to illustrate in the most jarring possible way. We found over 83,000 excess deaths per year in the African-American community alone. 83,000 excess deaths each year. That's the equivalent of a major airliner filled with black passengers falling out of the sky every single day, every year. But that's such a weirdly specific way to put that. You don't need to take a number that's already a disaster and put it in terms of another disaster. 83,000 excess deaths is like four double-decker buses driving into each other every six hours. It's 32 hot air balloons exploding every minute for a week. It's the death of Princess Diana 83,000 times. I get it. I get it. It's, it's pretty bad. I get it. Now, now clearly... Clearly, there are systemic factors contributing to that number, but even just when it comes to contact with the healthcare system, there can be appalling disparities. There are, again, many studies showing African Americans have a lower likelihood of receiving recommended care for everything from pneumonia uh, to hip fractures to multiple cancers. And while there's no one cause for these disparities, it certainly doesn't help that, as a study of med students and doctors found just three years ago, misinformation about African American patients is rampant. The study found some doctors believed there are biological differences between the two races. For example, 25% of doctor residents thought blacks have thicker skin. Holy shit! You do not expect to hear that at a medical school. You barely expect to hear it yelled across a table by a racist grandfather at Thanksgiving. What are you talking about, Grandpa? His skin isn't thicker than yours, and even if it were, that is not why you didn't vote for him. And, and that is not the only insane belief that that study found. 
14% of second-year med students agreed that black people's nerve endings are less sensitive than whites, which they obviously aren't, and 70% believe that black people's blood coagulates more quickly than whites, which it obviously doesn't. And at that point, I wouldn't be surprised to learn 86% of them believe that Irish jizz is green on holidays. Not, not, not even just St. Patrick's Day, all holidays, even Yom Kippur. That's the worst time to ejaculate. Now, now it is impossible to say exactly where they came by those beliefs. But medical textbooks are not immune from bias. This nursing textbook was available until just two years ago when it was pulled after it emerged that it featured statements like, and I quote, Hispanics may believe that pain is a form of punishment and that suffering must be endured if they are to enter heaven. African Americans believe suffering and pain are inevitable and Native Americans may pick a sacred number when asked to rate pain on a numerical pain scale. And you expect that a textbook might have typos or outdated information, you do not expect it to basically say, Hispanics think God is kinky and Native Americans will tell you wizard numbers. <laughs> and misconceptions like those can have tangible effects on treatment. Just think about it. If a quarter of all medical residents think that black people have thicker skin and nurses have been told that they think suffering is inevitable, that might lead to black patients' pain being treated differently, which happens. And I actually think that Wanda Sykes summed this up best. Because of racism, black people, we don't even get our hands on opioids. <laughs> they don't even give them to us. White people get opioids like they Tic Tacs. <laughs> it amazes me how many opioids you motherfuckers have. I had a double mastectomy. You know what they sent my black ass home with? Okay, okay, first, from now on, Advil should absolutely call itself ibuprofen. That is non-negotiable. That has to happen. But second, that's by no means unusual. One recent analysis found that black patients were 34% less likely to be prescribed opioids for pain than white patients with similar conditions. And while there are a lot of good reasons to prescribe fewer opioids, my patients are black is just not one of them. And the danger is if you consistently have bad experiences with healthcare, you might be less inclined to seek help that you need in the future. Just listen to this woman who was diagnosed with lupus describe how she was impacted by the response from doctors when she sought pain treatment. It was just this belief that I was making things up, that what I was saying wasn't real, that I must be seeking drugs or selling the drugs or some such thing. Is that really what people would, that's, that's what you were getting? In the oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so what happens is you start to develop a, a ton of fear around going to the doctor. Yeah, of course you'd be frightened to go to the doctor if you thought they'd treat you like a drug dealer. I'm terrified of them, and the worst thing doctors ever say to me is, Mr. Oliver, you're 42, and you should no longer need to be bribed with a lollipop to get a flu shot. But I want one. I want a wobby pop. <laughs> I've been very brave. <laughs> Give me a wobby pop. And look, look, I I'm not saying that all doctors are racist or sexist, because they obviously aren't. But people have biases, and doctors are people. And they may have come up in a system that intentionally or not has often discounted the experiences of a major portion of the population. And their biases, explicit or implicit, have life or death consequences. And there's perhaps no starker expression of where sex and race can negatively impact healthcare outcomes than maternal mortality. Currently, oh. the United States has the highest rate 
of maternal mortality in the developed world, which is already terrible, but it gets even worse for black women. If you're a woman of color in this country, especially if you're black, your odds of dying in childbirth are three to four times higher on average in our country. Why? Because you're not talking about access to health care. You're not talking about money or education. No, and this is going to be hard to hear. We believe black women less when they express concerns about the symptoms they're having, particularly around pain. Yeah, and that is hard to hear, but it is worth really underscoring what he just said there. These racial disparities exist even when you control for socioeconomic factors like education or insurance status. We are literally disbelieving black women to death. And that is appalling enough in theory, but it's heartbreaking in practice. Take Kira Johnson, who gave birth to a son, mm. only for things to go horribly wrong. Her husband said that she waited hours for a CT scan, and by the time doctors took the situation seriously, it was too late. She died in surgery. And to this day, her husband wonders what he could have done differently. I still wait at nights thinking, man, like, maybe I should have grabbed somebody by their collar, right? Maybe I should have turned the table over, right? Would that have made a difference? I definitely thought about the whole issue of I, I didn't want to perceive not only as angry, but angry black men, right? I'm not the smallest guy in the world. Um, and what that would mean and how we would be perceived and how we would be treated as a result of that perception. When this first happened, I would get the question a lot. Well, do you think it was because she was black? Do you think it would be different if Kira was white or was a different color? And the way I answer that question is the simple fact that you have to ask that question is a problem. Yeah, it is. It's a huge fucking problem because that's absolutely devastating. A woman no one would listen to and a man who feared that if he spoke up, he'd be judged for the color of his skin. Look, I don't think anyone in their right mind would be comfortable with the idea of someone getting worse medical care because of their race or sex. So given that we all agree on that, what can be done here? Well, ideally, you know, we'd simply figure out a way for no one to ever get sick again, thus making trips to the doctor an embarrassment of the past. You know, like VCRs or MTV giving out something called the Michael Jackson Video Vanguard Award. Hold on, 2019? They're still doing that? Is that a different Michael Jackson? It must be, right? Why drag Missy Elliott into this shit? But... But, but there are also concrete measures that the medical community can take here. Standardizing care is a good first step. Since 2006, California has cut its rate of women dying in childbirth by more than half, in part by instituting protocols for maternal care. Some hospitals uh, there now do things like quantifying blood loss after birth by gathering the sponges and pads and weighing them on a scale. That way, the doctor's potential biases are removed from the equation because if a patient is bleeding too much, the scale will say so. But that is just one example to address one very specific problem. Clearly, we need to think much bigger here, and I know I am just not the best vehicle for this message. What we really need is someone who can speak with authority from real experience here, and luckily, I know just the person. Please welcome Wanda Sykes! so so glad that you're here i bet you are yeah it's just because I, I was a bit worried that i might be a bit too white to give advice on this subject well, well that's because you are oh yeah. right yeah you're real white i am yeah, yeah. I, I bet you clap on the one and the three don't you <laughs> i honestly wouldn't know how else to do it uh -huh. yeah so you just
just gonna have me stand here? Oh, would you rather? Uh, yeah, I would. Oh, okay. I mean, sure, sure, please. You get the set. Let me sit. All right. <laughs> should I? Should I? Should I just crouch? Should I? You, you, you can oh, go. No. Okay. All right. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Welcome to Last Dad Tonight with Spectacles McDorky. Okay, look, if you're a woman or a person of color, going to the doctor can be rough. Been there, done that, got the ibuprofen. But there's some things we can do. First, doctors and med students should get bias training. I know that doesn't sound like fun, but it's one of those things that's not fun, but you should do it anyway. Like reading with your kids. Trust me. Trust me. You don't want to hear that your child has a reading problem and it's you. <laughs> Second, we need more diversity in the medical field. We need more non-white doctors in actual hospitals, not just the ones made up by Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> and finally, until we do those first two things, you've got to advocate for yourself. And if that doesn't work, don't worry. I've got a backup plan. It's called Bring a White Man. <laughs> Basically, if your doctor's ignoring you, just bring a white man to repeat everything you're saying. <laughs> and if you're thinking, Wanda, where the fuck am I going to get find one of those? Don't worry. I've got a white friend who loves complaining to doctors. And he's recorded some messages you can use. So let's say you're having a heart attack and they're not listening. Just take out your phone and show your doctor this. Hey, you know what? I'm having a heart attack. But it's not like, oh, no. No, it's a, it's a, it's a lady heart attack. I'm having a lady heart attack. <laughs> Skin thickness is pretty much the same as everybody else's. It's hard for me to explain what's going on with my ass, but I'm going to tell you something. It hurts. Okay? Side to side. And the crack. And it's like, I don't know if it's coming from the crack, and that's why the sides hurt, or if it's coming from the sides, and that's why the crack hurts. Oh, no, I can't go swimming. I've got the curse. So that's so great, Wanda. But let, let me just let me just ask quickly: What if a doctor still ignores you? Uh oh, don't worry. I got Larry to record the white person's seven-word mating call. Check it out. I'd like to speak to your supervisor. <laughs> Conversation over. It's done. It's all over. It's that's great, Wanda. Uh, thank you so much. 
this show, in my opinion, is absolutely incredible. Every single segment that he has is like a fucking... A win. And I recently saw this segment <clears throat> a couple weeks ago. And I thought that this would be a really good conversation piece to have on my podcast. And this man is a comedian. And I um, will also say that a situation that this, that's this difficult, you kind of have to make light of just to be able to digest. Um, but it's definitely no laughing matter. Because women are losing their lives unjustly. And... If we can prevent it, we should, in my personal opinion. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for continuing to listen in with me today. We've got more great content to come. Alright, um, so we're going to round up this uh, episode with um, a conversation about the cost. Because there... It's very much a, a, a price that is associated with being a woman of color and living in America. And so uh, we are going to round out with a tech talk and with a tech talk that uh, Monica Johnson did about a year ago on that very topic, uh, the emotional cost of being black. Being a black woman in America. Um, yeah, and we'll go from there. Thanks so much for sticking with me. Southern trees bear a strange Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar tree. I read an article the other day that claimed strange fruit killed Billie Holiday. Journalist Yudi Pak etched a complex epitaph to the legendary singer's legacy and tortured relationship with the American federal government. Pak outlined how a poet, Abel Mirapol, wrote a poem after coming across a photo that documented a 1930s lynching of two black men in Indiana. Indiana, which would be the epicenter to the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, and just so happens to be where we are today. Pop outlined how Maripold turned that poem into a song and ushered it into the hands of Billie Holiday herself. And Billie Holiday? She was particular. You see, she demanded that when she did that piece, 
The world stopped and listened. She always wanted the lights low. She wanted the room to be quiet. So she demanded there be no service, not even at the bar. Billy wanted the world to stop and listen. Stop and listen to a black woman's truth. So I did. I played that song. And I listened. And at first, I took the words at face value. Southern trees, poplars, weeping willows, magnolias, like the ones I grew up climbing in my grandmother's yard in Mississippi. They had a nasty habit of hanging the broken and twisted bodies of my kinfolk like ornaments on Christmas trees. I thought of the countless number of black women who stood in the shadows and watched the fruit that they bore and nurtured hung for the spectacle of white family picnics. Billie Holiday made me listen, not only to her truth, or those black women's truth, but to a truth that I personally had repressed, a truth of my own strange moment, the moment when I met my first white friend. So in the second grade, I transitioned to my first of many dominantly white private schools, first Presbyterian day school. And every day, my grandfather, who was born in the 1920s, would get up and proudly drive me 20 minutes to an ultra-white Jackson, Mississippi neighborhood for me to attend a school that he never would have been able to. I was one of three black children in my class. There were no black teachers. A lady who went to church with me helped out in the kindergarten room as an assistant. And there were two black ladies who ran the cafeteria, and I loved them. But everybody else that looked like me either cleaned bathrooms or cut grass. My classmates, they were real comfortable. Most of them lived in the neighborhood that surrounded the school the same neighborhood that would be chosen as the backdrop for the 2011 critically acclaimed and treacherously problematic film, The Help. I was an interloper here, and I was aware of it from the very first moment. So one day, I was able to meet my first white friend a young girl who sat next to me in class and shared my table at the lunchroom and played with me on the playground. And at the end of the day, we walked out to the pickup line together. 
and I watched her run to the loving arms of a beautiful black woman with a sweet smile. And unaware of all of the politics surrounding race and gender and class associated with domestic labor in my hometown, and probably influenced by watching one too many episodes of The Young and the Restless, I assumed that that black lady was my friend's mom. So when I went home that day, I went to my grandmother and I said, oh, guess what? I got another black friend. She real light-skinned, but I got another black friend. <laughs> and I remember the pain in my grandmother's face as she had to explain to me that black woman's truth. She said that she was my friend's mammy. Mammy? Mammy is a term that predates the American Civil War and is firmly grounded in American slavery. It was used to gloss over the way that African-American women were required during that time to love and nurture and raise generations of white children who would grow to own them. And some say that those children would also grow to love them. But can you love someone you own? I remember thinking through all of these weird feelings and not understanding how bondage could be cloaked in love or hate could be hidden behind an amorous smile. So at the first opportunity, I went to my friend the next day. And now you know you can't talk nowhere but the playground. And I said, wasn't that black lady that picked you up yesterday, your mama? smile she said no and explained that that lady was indeed her mammy I had more questions so I asked well what did she do for you and she explained to me the way that lady washed her clothes and cooked her food and put her to bed and got her dressed in the morning and dropped her off at school and yes picked her up every day in such a loving way. So I followed up with one more question. Well, if I come to your house to play, would I have to be your mammy too? And with sincerity, she said, I don't know. That conversation at the bottom of a jungle gym is an ever-present accoutrement to my existence as an ethnically African-American, racially black woman in the United States of America. It seems to find a way to attach itself 
in unwritten ways to every relationship or professional opportunity that I have. An expectation that my purpose, despite academic pedigree or intellectual capability, is tied to taking care of all masses chilling. I felt helpless and bound to a strange black existence in a big white world. And as I, I listened to Billie Holiday, it reminded me of how the world started to look different. How I could see the elements of race and racism actively in play at every stop. And how the compounding nature of my race and my gender separated me from opportunities that other people seem to access so easily. I had no idea that at the same time in history, legal scholars were calling these things uh, critical race theory and intersectionality. People like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw were putting words to feelings that I was living in the second grade. And here's Billy singing this song, making me listen. But Billie Holiday wasn't a legal scholar. But she had that power to make you hear and see truths. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck. For the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, for the sun to rot, for the tree to drop. They say that the American government ordered the killing of Billie Holiday because they wanted her to stop singing that song. Because she had a little bit too much power to make people listen. And people were starting to hear that America was operating on politics that were unequal. I mourned for Billy. And I mourned for me. And I mourned for the strange fruit. And I mourned for the tree. Because black women and trees have a similar affliction. You see, we are destined to bear and tell truth in a world socially constructed to rely on us for the structure of their families and homes and cultural identities and uh, businesses. Also, I've already said, don't put stuff on but to discard us like scrap paper in the end.
black. No, 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 no. southern tree. Fruit turned to seed and planted into fertile soil, sprouting to sapling and breaking through to meet a hostile world. I have been nurtured and throttled in this thing called life. And I meet the sun and I sprout limbs and leaves and deeper roots for protection. And I bear and shade a fruit that the world is determined to consider strange. But I am black. And I am a woman. And I am Southern. And I shall not be moved. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that'll be everything that we've got for today. Thank you so much for joining me. You're listening to Frequency Day, and I am Madam Butterfly. Um, until next time.